Hey, player two. Hi, it's me, Kitty M, the Org Geek. I'm here to take you through the land of Pod where we have so much to discuss because while I was away, what happened? I mean, what, I go away for like two weeks and this whole place goes to trash. <sighs> Can't believe I just start this back up with huge amounts of rage about Wonder Woman and, and Death Note. But I have the best idea for a Harley and Joker love story ever. You're not going to believe it. It's it's more beautiful than the movie Tremors, which I'll also be talking about. But couldn't find another way to segue into it, so this is how I did it. Come on, player two. Let's roll. Player two, come in, sit down. We've got lots to get through before we go out there. Apparently, the biggest blow-up with the DC Universe right now is that Sirens of Gotham is not going to be made, and that instead there's going to be a Harley Joker love story. But now it's being said that the Sirens is totally still being made, but also there'll be a Harley Joker love story. Which is kind of going to be like when Harry met Sally. And we live in a world where I don't know if people are just being sarcastic when they say that, so... You know what would make a Harley Joker love story more awesome? Ten minutes in, Harley leaves Joker for Poison Ivy and the rest of the movie is like truth about cats and dogs. And then there's just a half hour of Harley and Poison Ivy having a truly meaningful and fulfilling relationship. That would make a good movie. But this Harley Joker thing? No, that's just like Fifty Shades of Grey with more makeup. I wish it was the weirdest thing coming out of DC Movie Universe right now. Have you read the mess of press release information about the new Batman movie? It's not in the universe, but it is, and Batfleck isn't in there, but he might be? Someone needs to give DC a pizza. They need a pizza and maybe some chewy lollies. I recommend Swedish Fish because they're the Lamborghini of the gummy, but it's obvious that DC have some low blood sugar issues happening. And while they're sorting that out, don't worry, Stranger Things has still got us covered. They have confirmed a season three for Stranger Things, and with hints it could end at season four, which I want to be true. Much like Firefly and Devil is a Part-Timer, I would rather it leave me wanting more from a world that can still be explored than like in Buffy, or apparently Lost, which I didn't see because I was busy playing MUDs in chat rooms when that series was on because I've never been a cool person. You know what I always wanted to see more of, though? Tremors. Tremors was this highly underrated and not talked enough about movie franchise back in like the, I don't know, 80s maybe? It was about prehistoric worms, kind of like in June, but they're smaller and they evolve into creatures called ass blasters. The first movie starred Kevin Bacon, but my favourite actor throughout all three movies was Michael Gross, who you know is the lovable dad in Family Ties, but in this movie is a gun nut who's waiting for the Russians to finally start World War III. It's a trilogy you have to see because it's gory and hilarious and you're welcome. And you'll be able to see more of it because Vincenzo Natale could be the guy directing the new Tremors TV show. You know Natale's work from Orphan Black, but he's done a load of things, so uh, I'm ready. And it'll give you something to watch if you've finally given up on Game of Thrones. You know, George R.R. Martin doesn't even watch it anymore. I mean, me either. That's what George and I have in common. Apparently, George doesn't watch it, though, because of all the TV appearances and writing commitments he's got. But I think he doesn't watch it, because who wants to see their baby get made into sausage meat? Probably not George. I know there are people who love Game of Thrones TV series, but I started watching because it was pretty close to a physical representation of the books. And when it stopped being that and just started basically being a whole heap of rape scenes, it stopped holding any appeal for me. Also, side note, Danny is not a good person. 
Everyone can stop with the Dany is my queen. She's the epitome of entitled little rich girl. She wants Westeros because her father, who is a despotic and horrible ruler, owned it once. She has literally swept across a land, enlisting people into her army to mount an assault on a people who do not want to be ruled by her. All under the guise of being a guiding hand to those around her. What a... Whatever. Also, James Cameron is back to the Terminator 2 movies. He's made some changes. See, they're getting re-released. And Cameron does this with movies. He goes back and makes things slightly better. He did it with Titanic, changing the night sky to be closer to what it would have looked like back then. Which is cool. I like his commitment to detail and I don't mind his movies. I just don't like his take on Wonder Woman, though. We'll get to that. But first player two, we need to go. Buy some stationery. There's a book with some people's names I need to write in it. Here we are, player two, in one of the most magical places in any universe. A shop that sells stationery. Not every week can be the Justice League home base, okay? For a start, they change their password, like, all the time. I don't see you breaking us into anywhere cool. We're here so we can talk about stationery that kills people. Or books that kill people, to be specific. No, not like Lullaby by Chuck Palahniuk, though that is a fantastic book. You should definitely do yourself the favour of reading it. No, this is about Death Note. And the Netflix Death Note. Which is the biggest pile of trash I've seen since the Hollywood Ghost in the Shell trailer. I'm going to warn you, there will be spoilers ahead. Also, I'm going to tear this movie apart. So if you're one of the six people who enjoyed the film, this is not for you. Skip ahead. They gone? Cool. Let's get started, player two. I've seen a few people say that the Netflix Death Note is different but watchable. It's different and technically, yes, it is watchable in that you can watch it. It is physically possible to watch this movie. It's just it will kill your soul and belief in anything good ever happening, but you can watch it. To begin with, here's a brief overview of Death Note, the manga, anime, and previous live-action adaptions and what they've all been about. They've been about a notebook called The Death Note. It gives its holder the power of life and death, mainly death, hence the name. The notebook is an instrument used by Shinigami, death gods, to accrue life, which is sort of like their currency. The holder of the death note writes someone's name in the book, and then that person dies. There's more to it than that, but these are the basics. A death note finds its way into the hands of Light, a genius high school student who decides he wants to make the world a better place. Hilarity ensues, and by hilarity I mean loads and loads of people dying, which is the opposite of hilarity. The main players include Light, the genius high schooler. Light is a bit of an ambiguous character in that he's cool and smart, and though his family has been touched by crime and violence and his dad's a police officer, he at least outwardly isn't that interested in revenge or even justice. His plan is to get a good job and live an ordinary life. Light's family, a father who works too much and a sister who cares for him, are central to understanding his motivations. Then there's Ryuk, the Shinigami who's linked to the Death Note in question. Light can see and communicate with Ryuk because he has the Death Note. Ryuk also likes apples, but generally enjoys mucking around and watching what happens when the Death Note gets dropped into the paths of unsuspecting humans. L is the private investigator brought in to stop Kira, the name given to Light when his deeds come to, well, to Light. 
L loves sweet foods, is a boy genius, but the opposite to Light in that he's considered strange and awkward. Light and L engage in a complex chess game with the pieces of the people around them. Each time it seems Light has evaded L, it's revealed he's walked further into L's trap. And every time L is just about to reveal Light's deeds, Light effortlessly maneuvers himself to a position of unassailable defense. There's also Misa. She's an idol because this is meant to be set in Japan, so she sings in a girl group. She's been the victim of injustice. She too has a death note, and she and Light meet up eventually. This story has been told countless times, beginning in the manga, then the anime, then the live-action two-part movie adaption, then the J-drama, then a further sequel to the first set of movies. It's also been a musical, and I'm sure so much more. And while with every adaption of any story there will be casualties of plot and nuance, the Netflix version of this film is not just a slimmed down or altered version of this story, it's not even a Frankenstein's monster of a movie, where things are stitched together in a way that holds the basic shape of what it was aiming for but misses the mark in execution. No, the Netflix Death Note is the disemboweled corpse of the original story. It's like a movie pretending to be Death Note by wearing Death Note's skin. The original Death Note is a story of morality and justice and how those two elements in the world coincide with one another but are not always the same thing. It's about the human condition and the decisions of individuals when given true unequal power and what that does to someone. It's an examination and dissection of the darker elements of human nature. It's about the dual nature of having the power to do almost anything and how that can make us powerless to stop ourselves. It's about genius and strategy and eating chips. The Netflix Death Note is about a bratty teenager trying to death note and chill with his trigger-happy girlfriend. It's natural-born killers with stationery, but not as cool as that sounds. Both Light and L in the originals are meant to be masters of their own domains. Not the Jerry Seinfeld meaning of that. I mean, they're masters of their emotions. Light comes off as cool and aloof, and L is kind of alien and a little bit robotic, but it's part of their charm. They're so in control of themselves and their surroundings, they can see further in any situation. So they don't get caught up in little things. They're also so aware that any slip-up of emotion can cost them in the end game, but not in Netflix Death Note. In Netflix Death Note, both of them, the light especially, are afflicted with this constant need to scream their innermost feelings at any character unlucky enough to get in the way of the projectile vomit of emotions. Mia, Light's horrible girlfriend whose motivations are never explored or explainable, may be more hardcore than her original counterpart Misa because she smokes and wears clothes that are in serious need of mending, so you know she's a rebel, but she's also a mess of a character. Misa may be sickening in her sweetness, but at least she has her own death note and is smart enough to understand the risks being taken. You understand why she is who she is, even if most of the time she comes across as an unbearable damsel in distress. She's hopelessly in love with Light, but she's also committed to his view of the future and with good reason. Mia's motivations seem to be about as shallow as her character appears to be, and her entire power is dependent on her ability to manipulate Light into doing what she wants him to do. Nothing of what she does makes sense. And not in the erratic teenager wildly making decisions way. I mean, her character from the very beginning makes decisions that are just stupid and inexplicable. It's like the people who created her have never met a real person before. You know what else doesn't make sense? The song list in the homecoming dance. I'm all for in excess and I'd like to believe they'd be popular for high schoolers, but I'm also a realist and know this isn't a song kids are going to be grooving to at the school disco. 
And where the hell was My Chemical Romance and Placebo? If you're going to create an edgelord emo core love drama, then at least have the decency to put Placebo's A Friend in Need in the mix. Or garbage. You know, whatever. Speaking of realism, in the first five minutes, someone gets decapitated. Now, aside from the fact it's just some god-awful overstated gore, the circumstances of events that lead up to the decapitation are not only strange, they're not physically possible. Because dude gets decapitated with a ladder. You can't decapitate people with a ladder. Not speaking from personal experience, but it does clearly state in the death note that a death has to be physically possible. And there's no way that a car going at 80 kilometers an hour at most can force a ladder to move with such speed as to slice someone's head into. That's not how those things work. And yes, I know I'm talking about realism in a movie where stationery can kill you, but there are rules to this sort of thing. I'm not against gore, but 20 or so minutes in, we've already seen a decapitation, a projectile blood version of the Monty Python Waffer Thin sketch, and a guy explode like a piñata full of sausages on a sidewalk. It's tacky, and light wouldn't do it like that. You know, maybe if there'd been a little less romance with hints of John Carpenter, and a little more time doing actual plot and character development, it might have gone some way to honouring the fanbase they were meant to be appealing to with this movie. But they didn't. A lot of people have been saying the only saving grace is Willem Dafoe's portrayal of Ryuk, and they're not wrong, but that's about five minutes out of an hour and a half stab to the jugular of a wildly popular franchise. Dafoe isn't the only one who does a good job. All of them do the best they can, given the parameters of the characters created by the script and the vision of the director of how they're meant to be portrayed, but you can only do so much. Oh, and as a side note, when El is explaining why he'll be called Kira, he says it's because it means light in Russian and Celtic. Firstly, no, it does not mean that, and Celtic isn't a language. Now, I already knew that, but I double-checked it on Google, and I would expect Light, who is a genius, to know that, or at least Google it, or for the scriptwriters to Google it, or just not put it in. <sighs> but when we point out a problem, I think it's good to try and have a solution. So this is how I would have done an Americanized Death Note. I wouldn't have. But if I had to, on pain of death via stationery, I would have made it a story about a death note in America. None of the light Kira L stuff. There's more than one death note. You could still have Ryuk there, and if we're being honest, he's the one we all came here for. Have his name changed to Luke. There's the fan theory that his full name is Lucifer, which would be a sweet nod to the fans, rather than the massive headbutt to the face that we got. I know people worked hard on this, and as much as I love to unleash hell, it almost pains me to tear this apart, but there's no way to describe what happened here other than it was created by people who don't understand the source material. And I am sure there is a fan out there who loves this movie. And to them, I'm sorry that you have such low expectations for your franchise. Expect more from people. And this is a franchise that Netflix appears to want to keep on banking on giving the simpering ending that suggested there's even more on the way. No. Write the sequel's name in the nearest Death Note and just walk away. Let someone else pick it up and it can be their problem. Or just do what Light did and openly read the Death Note in the middle of school for everyone to see and impress the hot cheerleader by showing her how the Death Note works. In a scene that was meant to be the defining moment of Light's decision to become a force for justice, but now is just a scene that comes before the scene where we're told guys shouldn't seek the consent of girls they're about to touch. Are you crazy? <sighs> okay, I'm done. I'm done. Let's go start a fight with James Cameron. 
yes, we're in out of space. Don't worry about those spores you breathed in before him. Sure, they won't have any lasting effects. We're here to talk about James Cameron, because he said some stuff, and it's been a thing, and we just need to clear things up as to who the one and only true powerful female icon can be in geekery. James Cameron has said that the Wonder Woman movie is a step backwards for women because she's been made into a beauty icon. And then he compared Wonder Woman to Sarah Connor, who earned the respect of the audience through pure grit. And boy, oh boy, do people have things that they think about that. It all came out of an interview with Cameron that veered towards the Wonder Woman movie, and he talked about her being a beauty icon. And then when asked why Hollywood was so bad at depicting truly powerful women, Cameron responded with, and here's the quote, I don't know. There are many women in power in Hollywood, and they get to guide and shape what films get made. I think... No, I can't account for it, because how many times do I have to demonstrate the same thing over again? I feel like I'm shouting in a wind tunnel, end quote. Oh, boo-boo. Really? Firstly, and this is a minor point, but really? You want to make this about your frustrations at an inadequate representation of women in power, James? Bro, come on. On one hand, I am glad that a dude is also frustrated by that. That's a nice thing. On the other hand, no. I know this is a new concept, and I also find it difficult when I find out things aren't about me. You know what's worse than shouting into a wind tunnel, James? Having to live in the wind tunnel and smile politely in the face of the wind every day, because if you raise your voice, you get called trill. If you're lucky, that's the only thing that happens to you. But he's trying to do good. His intentions were nice. I want to believe that. To the more important part of this, though, there are different types of power and women can wield all of them. A woman can be beautiful and kind and compassionate and powerful as hell. Which means you don't have to keep doing the same thing over and over again, James. You could mix it up. But let's look at Sarah Connor. She comes from a position of power because she has a kid and indeed the only real function of her character in the first movie is to get saved and then get pregnant. Then her rage, her determination, her complete transformation as a character comes about because she becomes a mother. Not a great one, but it is a plot point. Not unlike Ripley in the Alien franchise, this motherhood aspect is less about things these women choose and more about the responsibility forced upon them. And it's always kind of there. The idea that their maternal natures, however twisted and out of sync with what society views motherhood to be about, adds to the strength of their characters. Which is fine. Those are two kick-ass ladies, and I for one love them. But if you're instrumental in creating female characters whose defining strength rests on their ability to stretch a deformed but still very powerful muscle of maternity, then you don't get to call out and dismiss the depiction of a woman whose body is her own, dictated to by no one, simply because she's beautiful. That kind of goes against the thing that we've been working towards. And don't get me wrong, I like the gritty, sweaty, broken women to the point of being two barrels of crazy. And I like those women being depicted on screen. And I like that there's men like James Cameron out there who think those women are attractive. If there weren't guys like that, I'd never have gotten a date. But Wonder Woman isn't for women like me, or for men like James Cameron, or anyone else who fits along the gender spectrum who prefers their feminine powers to be shattered and crazy. Wonder Woman is for people who want to see well-adjusted on the screen. She's for the people who aspire to be good and compassionate. I don't understand those people, but they should be allowed to have representation on the screen. It's like saying, we have Batman... Why do we need Superman? 
and why indeed Superman is such a jerk. Batman is a much better representation of everything. He's more realistic and he has cooler toys than Superman, but there are people who need to believe that they too can be the squeaky clean goody two-shoes standard of Superman. I don't know why people think we can't have everything. We can have it all. I mean, did, did everyone miss the very important message of Boss Baby? Which is, there's enough fandom to go around. And that babies are a concerted effort to try and overshadow how good dogs are. And all dogs are good. Just like all the strong female icons, James. They're all good role models. Come on, play it soon. Let's get back to the tavern. That's it, player two. I know, a bit of a quick one this time, but uh, it's good to be back. I'm going to stick around the tavern, but when you're back in meat space, check out the uh, the trailer for Nick Kroll's Big Mouth. It's a new Netflix animation series that's coming out, and I'm a big fan of Nick Kroll and John Mulaney. They did that Oh Hello thing on Broadway. Anyway, I find them very funny, and the animation looks filthy, so it's totally my kind of thing you might also enjoy it. Oh, if while you're in Meat Space on the internet looking up trailers of things, you can hit me up on Twitter at ChaosKittyM. There's also a Facebook page for The Land of Pod and a KittyM Facebook page as well. You can go and like those. And, and wherever you see this podcast, rate it highly to kind of trick people into thinking it's good. It's like It's like doing a practical joke, but you really don't have to do much at all to do the setup. You know, and that would be nice. Make me feel better about myself. Because your opinion matters to me. Doesn't, but I've heard I have to tell people that. Until next time, play it too.